to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6 English Standard Version For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, English Standard Version Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, English Standard Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth. Brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today I'm here with Crystal Sea's founder, R.D. Fierro, and we are beginning an entirely new series on Anchored by Truth that will discuss how we can be sure that the God of the Bible exists. R.D., the notion that there is a God who exists and created everything didn't used to be very controversial. But it seems like today there are more and more people who object to the very idea of a transcendent God. Well, unfortunately, I have to agree with that observation. But the good news is that according to the Pew Research Center, still an overwhelming majority of Americans do believe in God, a God of some kind. The Pew Research found in a recent survey that over 90% of Americans that responded to their questions said that they believed in God. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is that a lot of the people who do believe in God really do not accept the God of the Bible as God. In fact, 33% of the respondents did not agree with the concepts that apply to the God of the Bible. But back to the good news, 56% of Americans said that they still do believe in the God of the Bible. Ah, it's the good news, bad news, good news cycle. Well, I suppose that one of the takeaways from that kind of research is that unlike in previous decades, there are plenty of missionary opportunities available without ever leaving home. While foreign missions are still an important part of the Church's mission, it's increasingly important to witness to the people around us. In fact, there may never have been a more important time in history than now for us to be able to provide cogent and understandable reasons for our faith. True that. That was a particular area of interest for me when I wrote the book, The Prodigal's Advocate. What I wanted to do was write a fantasy and adventure story 
But I wanted to include in that fantasy and adventure story some of the principal arguments that have historically been used to support a belief in the God of the Bible. So the reader, while they're enjoying the story of Prodigal's Advocate, actually gets to listen to quite a few of the very strong reasons that we can have confidence that there is a God and that that God is the God of the Bible. So it's hopefully a double blessing for our readers where they not only get the enjoyment of the story, but also get some good sound apologetic education along the way. So for the next few episodes, we want to introduce our listening audience to the book Prodigal's Advocate. Right now, we're still a little ways away from releasing a full version of the audiobook, but the hard copy and the ebooks are available now from a variety of sources, including Crystal C's website. Why don't you take a minute to set the stage for the extract that we're going to play today? Well, Prodigal's Advocate is a fictional adventure, as I mentioned. It's an adventure fantasy, and along with the adventure, it takes an in-depth look at some of the reasons that people give for either believing in God or, frankly, we address some of the reasons that people say that they don't believe in God and Jesus. So the story is centered around a man who's in his mid-30s, who you can think of as the prodigal, and it follows the prodigal through a series of experiences that he has following his death, the death of the prodigal, in a tragic accident. After the prodigal dies, I don't want to give away too much of the story, But after the prodigal dies, he winds up in a huge amphitheater, an absolutely humongous amphitheater, where he finds himself in a crowd of people, and all of these people, including the prodigal, are waiting to face judgment before the judge, who is called the one without shadow. Now, while the prodigal is sitting around in this huge amphitheater waiting for his call, He has a series of conversations with others in the crowd, and he quickly finds out that the people's experiences after death are not the same for everybody. And while this is a fictional story, of course, as believers, we know that that's true. Not everybody is going to have the same experiences after death. Some of us are going to be destined for heaven, for an eternity of bliss and blessing, and others, unfortunately, will be destined for a place of eternal torment. Anyway, in this particular extract, uh, the prodigal is talking to an elderly lady named Maria, who was a grandmother before she died. And this lady, Maria, was actually the one person that the prodigal finds who met the prodigal's wife before she, the prodigal's wife, who was named Rachel, was called into the great hall of judgment. Maria gave me an impish look, but did not wait for me to say anything, which was just as well because there were so many new ideas trying to find a place to lodge in my mind that there was quite literally nothing I could say. All this is giving you some trouble, isn't it? On earth, you never thought about the fact that babies are people. Unborn babies are just unborn people, but certainly no less human and no less precious to the advocate. Her voice was halfway between mirth and her grandmother's concern as she continued to stare at me. Then, quite unexpectedly, she said, Rachel told me you'd be this way. Rachel? Rachel? How do you know Rachel? And how could you possibly know that she was... Your wife. Maria finished my unspoken thought. Sweetie, naturally she told me about you. How else could I know? I'm not the advocate or the one without shadow or the radiant dove. So I have to learn things the old-fashioned way. Somebody has to tell me. She had a rather self-satisfied smile, the grin of someone who had been keeping a secret that she now got to tell. 
Rachel told me to keep an eye out for any young man, young to me, of course, who might arrive wearing a robe of confusion. People like that, like you, are pretty easy to spot in the horribly colored robe. I don't swear, but the color of that robe is almost a reason to start. Sort of like you are sick all over yourself. Rachel was terribly concerned that you would come here in the same state that she left you, confused and drifting. It was the only thing that caused her any sadness, though naturally, she's beyond all that now. When I saw you in that robe, staring at Mitch and the children, and then you didn't even seem to know the basics, I just guessed that it might be you. You look a lot like Rachel said you would. My unhead was about to explode with the thought that I had now encountered in the amphitheater someone who knew Rachel. When Maria mentioned Rachel describing me, it produced a warm sensation. It did not last long. Rachel said, you would look lost, and probably like you were trying to figure everything out around you. I guess you are. Maria studied me for a bit, and then said, Rachel was right. The truth doesn't come easily for you. I hope you knew her well enough to know that she was wearing the cleanest, brightest white linen robe that you can imagine, and it had so much gold on it that it was like a messenger had taken gold from all the walls of the Hall of True Glory and woven a glowing brocade tapestry just for her robe. As to how long ago that was, haven't you noticed by now that time is irrelevant in the outer court? And depending on what you decide about the advocate, it can be that way for you forever. What do you mean, time will be irrelevant? Time is always, well, always part of everything. I was trying to find a way to make all this new information fit in my brain coherently. Actually, in the Advocate's Kingdom, not only is time irrelevant, but so is what we used to call math, or at least a lot of what we used to do with math, counting, figuring, and keeping track of numbers and amounts. That type of thing will all be behind us, too bad in a way, just when my brain power will be at its peak, I won't have to balance a checkbook anymore. I still don't follow you, Maria. Time and math are built into the universe. They're not optional, no matter what the advocate or anyone else decides. <sighs> Maria sighed a bit and scrunched up her face as if she were trying to explain colors to a two-year-old. Your problem, sweetie, is that you're still trying to make the pieces fit into your little world. You don't want to trust what you can't see or feel. Haven't you figured out yet that the universe you could feel and touch or even see through a telescope, as big as the universe was, it was just a tiny bit of creation? The part of creation that we could never see or touch when we were in our old, weak bodies is so much bigger and grander. It will take an eternity for us to explore. And that's what the Advocate's followers will have. An eternity to spend in exploration. So in that scene, the prodigal is starting to learn that our experiences after our life on this world are going to be related to what we did on this world. That's one of the points in the book where the prodigal is discovering that some people, the Advocate's followers, will spend eternity in a blessed exploration of heaven. Sadly. The prodigal also learns that not everyone will share that destiny. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons we founded Crystal Sea. To help people understand that our lives on this earth are what prepares us for an eternal hereafter. 
And the Bible tells us very clearly that we have all sinned and fallen short of the standards that would gain us entrance into a heaven on our own. And that means that we all need an advocate to represent us before the judge. And this is a judge who is so perfect, he is so perfectly filled with light, that he has to be called the one without shadow. That's one of the reasons that we founded Crystal Sea, was to reinforce that very simple and basic truth that all of us have sinned, and all of us need an advocate, and the prodigal's advocate as a book, as an adventure fantasy, is just designed to help us achieve that basic goal. And thankfully, we do have an advocate available in Jesus. But in order to accept Jesus as our advocate, we need to be confident that he was indeed the Messiah, the appointed one, sent by God to be our advocate. And we get that knowledge from the Bible. But in our culture today, there's an artificial construct that has been created that says we can either believe in the Bible through faith or believe in science. But you say that it's not necessary to view the world that way. It's not only not necessary, in fact, it's the exact opposite. There is every reason that we can have confidence in both the Bible and in science when we properly understand both of them. Our faith in the Bible does not require us to suspend our intellectual faculties and take some kind of a nonsensical leap into a mysterious abyss where we believe in something that is contrary or in opposition to logic, reason, and evidence. To the contrary, faith in the God of the Bible is not only entirely reasonable, it's actually necessary to formulate a coherent worldview. Tragically, today, too many people see Christianity and science as being at odds with one another, but in truth they're not. And we've forgotten today that many of the early giants of real science throughout the ages were ardent and devout Christians. And in fact, much of the modern science and medicine was based on the idea that there was a creator who valued order and design so much that he built it into the universe. And because the creator built order and design into the universe, that makes it possible for men to study the universe in a disciplined and organized fashion to discern that order and truth. And then we can use that order and truth that is discerned and discovered to make the lives of people better. In fact, one of C.S. Lewis's most famous quotes was that science, or at least how we view science today, originally became possible because the first scientists had confidence that a god of order, purpose, and design had built the universe in such a way that it was possible to discover what we generally think of as the laws of nature. Yes, But in the same quote that you're alluding to, C.S. Lewis also began to worry that the original search for those laws was becoming corrupted. And he thought it was becoming corrupted because the scientists began seeing their studies rather than God as being supreme. And I think that the exact quote is actually instructive, so I'd like to read it. This is quoting C.S. Lewis. Men became scientific because they expected law in nature and they expected law and nature because they believed in a legislator. In most modern scientists, this belief has died. It will be interesting to see how long their confidence in uniformity survives it. Two significant developments have already appeared. The hypothesis of a lawless subnature and the surrender of the claim that science is true. We may be living nearer than we suppose to the end of the scientific age. That's the end of the quote. You could hear from the quote, 
C.S. Lewis was already beginning to worry that there was an artificial conflict beginning between science or between scientists and God between the ability of the scientists to understand that the foundation premise for their own work was that there was order and design and purpose in nature and that we could discover that order. But in order to do so, we had to recognize where that order came from, which of course is in the God of the Bible, a God of order, purpose, and design. So part of what you want to do through Crystal Sea and through the radio and podcast series that we're calling Anchored by Truth is to address the concern that Lewis was expressing. We want to reestablish the harmony that used to exist between a belief in the Bible and a proper understanding for how we view His created order, the universe. I mean, if God created the universe, we would expect to find His fingerprints on it and in it. And one of those fingerprints was the revelation that He had made to His supreme creation, man. The revelation that is found in the Word of God, the Bible, as well as the incarnate Word of God, Jesus. Yes, but even before we come to the Bible, it's possible for us to think about what we can glean about the necessity for God's existence just by what we can see in the created order around us. Christian scholars have historically distinguished between two types of revelation, general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is exactly that. It's general in nature and general in availability. General revelation is available to all people at all time. And it's essentially the kind of revelation that comes to us through nature, or what older theologians used to call common notions. And we'll talk about those in a future episode of Anchored by Truth. Now, there's a classic verse in the Bible that describes general revelation. It's found in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. And those verses say, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth truth. Night after night they reveal knowledge. And then verse 4 of Psalm 19 goes on to say, That their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So in other words, that verse in Psalm 19 is talking about the general revelation that God made through his creation to all mankind, and that verse asserts that all of men have the ability to perceive that message, the message of general revelation, which is that there has to be a power, there has to be a supernatural creator behind all the creation that they can see. Special revelation, by contrast, is special in the sense that it is delivered to God's people. And special revelation is essentially the Word of God as it's revealed to His people through the Bible or as it's been revealed through, as you mentioned, Jesus, the incarnate Word of God. So special revelation is the Word that God gives to His people to amplify to them, to give them additional instruction about Him, about His purposes, about His plan, and about His nature. So today, you want to discuss what is revealed by general revelation, or at least you want to launch that discussion because some of it will have to wait for our next episode. Well, you say that one of the things that general revelation tells us is that there is a God, a self-existent being who possesses the power of existence unto and by himself, and whose existence accounts for the existence of everything else. Exactly. Well, I'd like to begin our discussion of how we can demonstrate the existence of God in the same way that R.C. Sproul of Ligonier Ministries 
R.C. was the founder of Ligonier Ministries. I'd like to begin our discussion in the same way that R.C. used to begin his discussions of how it's possible to demonstrate that God's existence is a logical necessity. R.C. used to start by saying that as long as you believed in anything, pencil, old shoe, book, banana, whatever you believed in, as long as you believed anything that it was possible to demonstrate from that single fact that anything existed that you could deduce that a self-existent God was a logical necessity. That sounds interesting. So today you want to begin with R.C.'s line of reasoning? I do because I think it's so easy to follow. I think just R.C. had a brilliant way of helping people understand how we can demonstrate the belief in existence of God is a logical necessity. R.C. said that after thinking about this topic carefully, he had come to the conclusion that there were only four possible explanations for everything that we can see around us, that everything that we can see on the earth or out in the farthest corners of the universe. And those four possible explanations are? Those four explanations are... Everything that we see around us could be an illusion. That's the first one. Number two, everything that we see around us was self-created. Number three, everything that we see around us was created by something or someone who is self-existent. Or, fourth and the final possibility, is that everything that we see around us is itself self-existent. Okay. Some of those possibilities sound like they're pretty easy to understand but a couple sound like they will take a bit of explanation. But you say it is fairly easy to demonstrate and that two of those possibilities are logically impossible. Which two are those? The first two. The possibility that everything we see around us is an illusion or that it has been self-created both involve inescapable logical contradictions. So while they are speculative possibilities, in reality, neither one could be a valid explanation for the created order that we see. Well, let's start with illusion then. How do you go about showing that everything just can't be some form of a giant or wizard or angel's daydream? That everything that we can see or perceive isn't just some kind of an elaborate illusion? Well, let's start by supposing that everything that we see around us is some kind of an elaborate illusion. Let's just start by taking that as a possible hypothesis. Everything that we see around us is just an elaborate illusion. Well, the first question we'd have to ask after acknowledging that is, who or what is having the illusion? An illusion would require a being to have the illusion. So the possibility that everything we see around us is some kind of an imaginative figment is in reality logically impossible. For there to be an illusion, there has to be something or someone to perceive the illusion. That means that there has to be something that exists beyond just the illusion itself. So the possibility of everything that we see being an illusion, you can discount that from the simple fact that it contains an inherent contradiction. That's pretty straightforward. And you say that likewise, the possibility that everything we see is self-created also involves a logical contradiction. It does. The most basic law of logic is the law of non-contradiction. A cannot be A and non-A at the same time in the same relationship. Well, before anything can do something, it must first be something. Doing something requires a doer. Creation is an action. Creation is an activity. It requires doing. So for anything or anyone to create something, anything much less the universe, 
that something or someone would first have to exist. So the concept of self-creation involves doing before being. And that's simply impossible. Nothing can do something before it is something. So the concept of something being self-created, again, involves an inherent logical contradiction that immediately rules that out as being a valid, possible, propositional explanation for the existence of the universe, for the existence of things that we see around us. And yet that possibility, for years, was embraced by scientists. They just didn't call it self-creation. They called it spontaneous generation. And some scientists today, when writing about the origins of the universe, still drift into using the language of self-creation. Yes. I've read a lot of articles written by creationists as well as written by people who are committed secular naturalists about the universe's origins. If the article is not being written by a creation scientist, sometimes the writer will slip into using language like the universe sprang into being or that such and such a principle shows how something can come from nothing. Now, when writers write things like that, either they're being incredibly imprecise, or they're just not thinking very clearly. For instance, the statement that the laws of physics demonstrate how something can come from nothing, that's just irrational. If there was ever a time when nothing existed, then the only thing that could ever have happened was that nothing would continue to exist. I mean, nothing is no thing. Nothing is no atoms, no molecules, no subatomic particles, no space, not even time. I mean, in truth, as beings, as thinking and active beings, we can't really even envision the concept of true nothingness very effectively, because even to try to envision or imagine what nothingness would be like involves us thinking. So as existing beings, just using our imaginations means that we are acknowledging our own existence. Again, that seems pretty straightforward. But when you start thinking about it very much, it kind of gives you a headache. And if you have a headache, that means you have a head. So the fact that anything exists today is a graphic demonstration that there has never been a time when there was absolutely nothing. Of course, as believers in the God of the Bible, we know that God has always existed. But unfortunately for today, we don't have enough time to discuss God's self-existence in detail. So we'll save that for next time, when we'll take up the final two possibilities for explaining the existence of the created order of everything that we see around us. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Since we're spending time meditating on the marvelous creation that God brought into existence out of the power that He alone possesses, today, let's pray a prayer of adoration for the Creator. A prayer of praise for the Creator. Mighty and everlasting Father, You are a kind and merciful God. You have given us eyes to see, fingers to touch, ears to hear, and minds to understand. You bring us into the full and certain knowledge of your transcendent creative power. When men gazed at the stars and sky, They could perceive the depth, but not measure the distance. 
through your grace, man now has the ability to understand that your cosmos is more supremely complex and vast than ever could have been known before. What mortal mind can fathom this magnificence? Praise be to you, Father of the galaxy, and praise to your Son, who created at your right hand. It is because of his descent that we will one day be lifted up. So we pray and give thanks in his name. Amen. Next time on Anchored by Truth, we're going to continue our discussion about how we can be confident that the God of the Bible actually exists. And because a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, we want to remind listeners that if they missed any episodes or if they just want to hear one again, all of these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us then. And we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is.